Hey, welcome to the Articulate Ox podcast, where artists talk about the art that made them artistic. I am your host, Soma79. Thank you once again for joining me. My guest today is singer-songwriter Jason Temple. I've known Jason for a really long time, longer than I probably even care to admit, but um, he's super talented. We're talking today about The Sundays, which is a um, kind of an alternative rock band from the early 90s from Britain. And they're, they're a group who I was always familiar with, but didn't really know their music. When I went back, when I went and listened to it, I realized that some of the songs were familiar to me and I knew them. They kind of have sort of a Cranberries-esque vibe. I believe those two groups were compared a lot back in the day, but um, what do I know? Because I didn't really know that much about them. But Jason and I have a great conversation here. We talk about our own approaches to making music. We talk a little bit about a project that we're working on together with our man, Dan Bazzoli. That project is, seems to be called Microwave Sushi, so keep your ears peeled for that. There may be something coming out later this year. We shall see. But um, yeah, so hope you enjoy the conversation with Jason. I'll talk to you. Peace. Hey, welcome to episode 14 of the Articulate Ox podcast with my guest today, Jason Temple. I have known Jason for a long time, and we're going to talk about one of his favorite groups, The Sundays, and we're also going to talk about his album, Jason Temple, Postcards and Ephemera, uh, which came out in 2022, correct? Yes, after a long process, yes. Cool, we'll talk about all that. And I believe at the time of when this will be released, this, this album will be available on streaming services. You still have vinyl yep. available and all that good stuff. Yep. So, excellent. Well, what's going on today, man? How you doing? Pretty good. Um, you know, just happy to sit down and talk with you because, yeah, I love this podcast and the idea behind it. So, oh, man, I great to talk it. to you. Yeah, thank you so much for being on here. So let's talk a little bit about the Sundays. Um, they're one of those bands that I definitely, when I was younger, I saw their album covers all over the place. I saw their name all right. over the place and I heard other people talking about them. But I, until I went back and listened to one or two of their albums, I don't think I ever heard one of their songs before. Um, and I was pretty blown away. I mean, they're pretty awesome. They're a UK group. And yeah. um, sort of, I said before we started, sort of cranberries ask for people who haven't heard them. Sure though they probably predated the cranberries by a little bit. So talk a little bit about um, your introduction to them and how they inspired you. Yeah, so um, like a lot of uh, bands and people with older siblings, they were introduced to me by my brother. He introduced me to my older brother and they introduced me to a lot of bands that I still adore. Um, And yeah, the Sundays were just kind of like... um, the thing that got to me with them was the layered textured guitar playing that Dave Gavorin, their guitar player, does. I um, was kind of a, I was a big U2 fan and still am, but growing up and it kind of seemed like an extension of what the Edge was doing. A lot of those, you know, intricate crossing lines and, you know, chorusy, delayed effects that I love. It just gives it more space and when you're the only guitar player in a band, it kind of helps fill that space to have some of those things. But in her, Harriet Wheeler's singing is perfect for that kind of thing. It's very ethereal and kind of flowery, if you will. But um, yeah, they they just were a huge influence on my guitar playing. You know, uh, when I first started playing guitar, you know, I, I came up in the age of hair metal, like yes. a lot of people. So, you know, that stuff was 
fun to watch because technically it was, you know, amazing guitar playing, but it really wasn't what I was aiming for. So yeah, I, I feel like the people... Sundays. Oh, no, go ahead. I think for people who weren't around back then, the difference, like hair metal just sort of died overnight when groups like yeah. Nirvana and I think exactly. there's a certain aspect of MTV that started pushing that sort of music really just took it over. And it's, I don't think I've ever seen anything die that quickly in pop culture since then. Yeah. It's just, you know, and, and yeah. a lot of it has come back. I mean, there was, there was sort of that era where it's like, okay, we're getting rid of the rap of the 80s, no more like Kid and Play and Jazzy Jeff and the Fresh Burns, right, and right. we're getting rid of all the, the rock of the 80s, and we're going to proclaim they'll never be back, though all of them, they live on again today. I go back, I was sure. listening to Def Leppard the other day, and I was oh, loving absolutely. it. <laughs> yeah, I mean, again, I got no shame. I still listen to some of that stuff, and Def Leppard's a perfect example. Like, they definitely are in that genre, but again going back to guitar the things they were doing guitar wise is kind of in that same vein where there's a lot of different parts going on it fills the sound it's not just right. really fast shredding if you will um so Def Leppard's a band out of that era I definitely appreciate for that um but yeah so the Sundays were just yeah kind of the antithesis of that and um really were in my wheelhouse of I was like oh that's kind of like guitar playing I want to do yeah. And um yeah, that was right around when I started kind of writing my own stuff when I got introduced to them. Yeah. So, so when did you start actually playing? So I was probably seriously, you know, I, I actually started on drums because my dad was a drummer my whole you know life growing up. I was like his de facto roadie. <laughs> I was like a, a ten year old kid in these bars, like helping him set up his drums because he played in cover bands and stuff. So that's awesome. He had a drum kit in the basement when I was a kid, so I would just bang around on that. But then my brother, again, he played guitar, and that was a huge influence on me. And guitar was just a little more portable, if you will, um, than drums, and um, you could play it anywhere, especially if it's an acoustic. Um, so yeah, I was probably about thirteen when I was, you know, really starting to just exclusively play the guitar and um, for better or worse, I never took lessons. Um, so yeah. My brother taught me one Ramon song, I think, and everything was right. built off of that. It was like, okay, this is Blitzkrieg Bob, but I'm like, all right, I can take it from here. Yeah, my first song I remember learning was Dirty Water. Yes, that's um, a good one. Yeah. yeah, my dad showed me how to play and growing up around Boston, I think it's, kind of appropriate that was the one to learn yeah. first. smoke on the water is usually not very far behind that either That's yeah, yeah yeah one of the other big ones people learn first yep and then um, um, um so what do you yeah, remember so, what your first guitar was i do um so i kind of was gifted a west tone which was kind of like a i don't know if they sold them in sears but i think they were like a department store guitar brand i have one and, of those. Uh, not one of yeah. those, but I have a guitar. Yeah, I have a similar yeah. story. Go on with yours first. Um, but yeah, and had a hand-me-down amp. I don't. I still don't remember I got that amp. And then eventually, like, I got my first quote-unquote real guitar um, and a real amp, uh, like, a couple of years later. And uh, I still kind of wish I had that West on. My dad wanted to give it away to someone when oh, I was nice. living with my mom. And I was kind of bummed about that, but... Yeah, it's hopefully funny. they got enjoyment out of it. 
Yeah, my first guitar was it was a three quarter bass that um, somebody from our high school that was two years older than us. Um, we'll call him Jeff G. He, <laughs> um, he, I guess his his father had bought him a bass. Basically, it was a rock axe, and the thing weighs. I still have it. It weighs way more than any other guitar I've ever had. Oh sure. Yeah, and the little amp had all this fuzz on the side. And I used oh, wow. it to play on a bunch of my, I mean, I, I really should take it in to get it fixed up because it's probably not, I think right now it won't even, if I plug it in, like the, there's a problem with electric components, but I still use the thing. I use it for years and it's, it sounds pretty oh, good, yeah. you know, I mean. Well, even the, the cheap guitars from back then were made really well, I feel like. Um, yeah. But uh, yeah, I mean, there's a great place by you. And your neck of the woods, if you need a place to get it fixed, called Mill River. Okay. Uh, I see, I've had a few of my places, a few of my things fixed at a different place. So I wish I could remember what they were called. They're um, right in downtown Northampton. Oh, Last downtown time I was in there, probably. Yes, yeah. Last time yeah. I was in there, it's a classic story of living in Western Master. Like, Jay Maskus was just here. You just missed yeah. him. <laughs> It's yep. like everybody has a bumping into Jay Maskus story around oh, here, course, except yeah. for me. When I lived in Boston, is everybody had bumping into Aerosmith story? I have, I have two of those, but I don't have any Jay oh, wow. Maskus stories. <laughs> well, well I say Steven Tyler is a lot shorter than I thought he'd be. <laughs> yeah, that's usually how that goes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. When I was first living in Western Mass, I was talking to my buddy in Portland, and I said, I think I saw Jay Maskus in Newberry Comics, and he just said, you saw Jay Maskus. <laughs> like, he's like, there's no mistaking him for anyone else. So. Yeah. There's a photo out here of some car dealership, a friend of mine showed it to me, that he had bought a car from a few years ago, and they took a picture of him with a salesman in the car, and he looks as nonplussed as you could possibly look. <laughs> oh, and I think they, they post it, like, every year. This It's it's hilarious. <laughs> That's nice. Yeah. Yeah. But so um, we we were bit, they're one of those great those groups that either you know them as being an absolute classic legendary group or you don't know them at all. <laughs> like yeah, I, I trying to explain to someone who Dinosaur Junior is. Like, How do you not know who Dinosaur Junior? I'm like, you don't tell me you don't know who the Lemonheads are either. Right, right. Yeah, I guess growing up in Massachusetts, we're a little more privy to some of those bands because they're from here, but. Um, yeah, I mean, he's legendary for sure. I mean, he's got numerous signature guitars now and pedals. So yeah, the documentary that came out, they did a documentary that they showed at the theater here in Amherst. So I actually had tickets. I was supposed to go see them and they were supposed to be there presenting it. But I think, I don't know. I think I might've got sick. I don't forget what happened, but I ended up having yeah. this. Or maybe I, I, I was out of town or something, but it would have been great. Oh, by the way, that makes me, this is a total non sequitur, but it goes back because I You're listened to your, your pod with Leah Donahue and you were talking about Tycho. Yes. Um, next time you're at Amherst Cinema and you're waiting for the previews, the music they play is Tycho. Oh, is it? Yeah. <laughs> so. Wow. I, I, damn, I wish they knew that. I have to go back. That's a great cinema. That I just saw. Oh, yeah. Um, I had never seen this movie before. It was a, it was a Dennis Hopper movie called um, it was Out of the Blue. Um, it, was, it was a line from the Neil Young song. It was Out of the Blue, I think. Oh, and, okay. and it hadn't been, I think it's not really available. There's a lot of music in it that I think would be really tough to um, probably get cleared on. Sure. But it, the, the young woman in the movie was, I don't know how old she was. She was playing underage. And I think she might have been 16 or 17. It was one of the best performances by a young person I've ever seen huh. in my life. It was amazing. I I, I can't, can't recommend it enough. Um, 
and, and she went out she didn't even go on to do that much i think she was sort of one of those people who just kind of aged out of it but um i highly recommend checking out that movie and i saw fire walk with me the twin peaks movie I'm oh nice the twin peaks ring today nice. so if i disappear i don't know why um, <laughs> i got actually my twin peaks and simpsons mug here so yeah that's a good combo <laughs> stocks and twin peaks um so it's, it's funny you mentioned the the scene back then i don't think i i realized that i was older how fortunate we were to have so many of these groups in our backyard like dinosaur jr the Lemonheads, sure. letters to cleo um yep. insert other Julian band Hatfield. yeah there you go julian hatfield um a bunch of others uh obviously berkeley was there see for me as a kid Boston might we you know we grew up around the Hoppington area so where the Boston Marathon starts um it's 26.2 miles away from Boston but for me it might yeah. as well have been 26,000 miles because I think oh sure I went to the science museum maybe once as a kid um the aquarium I, yeah I don't even know if I went there until I was an adult yeah. I um I remember I it wasn't I went to Boston University so then it was like I was going there all the time but I never had gone to any of those shows in Cambridge. Did you ever? Did you ever get to go into Boston to see any shows when you were in high school? Not really. Um, I didn't start going to shows till right out of high school, uh, which I regret because you know, like one person that I just absolutely adore the music, and he's no longer with us is Jeff Buckley, and he played a ton around there when we were in high school. I would have loved to see, yeah. or Morphine is another. Boston yes. band that I love that man they never talked about see. much anymore oh I love that band and um you know I just never got to see them in their heyday and you know they were from Cambridge they played like Middle East and all that all the time so that would have been great to see them but yeah I didn't really start going to shows till right out of high school but I made up for it after that I was going constantly and into Boston a lot to see a lot of local bands I wasn't sure. So I, I, there was. I remember the first show I ever went to was Smashing Pumpkins at the Wallace Civic Center on the Siamese Dream Tour. Oh, wow. You weren't at that one. I remember there was a lot yeah. of people from. Uh, everybody's wearing those T-shirts afterwards. I actually still have my T-shirt from that show, and it never oh, nice. fit me right. And I recently Googled what it goes for on eBay, and and then I, I felt like I could get some extra cheese on my Whopper. So that thing oh, might sure. be coming up for sale pretty soon. Yeah, somebody yeah. wants to overpay for my barely yeah. worn smashing pumpkin shirt i'm gonna slide my advertisements sure get that money it's the purple one google it yeah um yeah the only time i saw the pumpkins was on Lollapalooza the year they were on Lollapalooza. i think it was the third Lollapalooza with the beasties and tropical quest i wish i'd seen that show that was a great show yeah the only one i went to was metallica rancid ramones Soundgarden. Oh. not really yeah, I, I was a huge Rancid fan. I loved Ramones, Soundgarden, Metallic. I can kind of take your lead, but it wasn't a very um, Lollapalooza feel in the show. You know? Yeah, but, sure. I was still Actually, going. you bring up Rancid, so are you an Operation Ivy fan? You know what's funny is I don't really. I I was I went down a, a Google rabbit hole on them recently. I had totally forgot that. Tim Armstrong was from Operation Ivy. And I think it's just because oh, yeah. my brain just sort of has been into Rancid for so long. And I went back and listened to all their stuff again. And I wasn't back then. Like, I didn't, it was one of those albums that I saw but never heard. But now I'm like, how did I miss this? Well, see, I learned of them from skate videos. So back then I was a skater. And they they did an H Street video and the whole thing was Operation Ivy music. So that's how I found out who they were. And uh, yeah, I was hooked. 
It's funny how many people cite skate videos as the way they're introduced to music. Oh, yeah. Um, I saw Arches of Loaf a few years ago and I brought some friends. And they're like, yeah, I don't know anything about them except for one song and a skate video when I was a kid. Right. And it's like, and it's like, I think the, the higher level of that, the, the, the bigger level of that is the Tony Hawk skateboarding games. Like I can oh, yeah, still yeah. hear the Goldfinger song from that in my head, like right. probably more so than that other song that, by them that I can't remember at all. Right. But that stuff really got music out there. And, and it, well, I was mentioning oh, sure. before about that time when hair metal went, you know, kind of switching to alternative. At that point, there was really, there was almost like Coke and Pepsi. There were two brands of rock music. There was the hair metal. Right. And then there were, which was like, you know, the the Guns N' Roses and, you know, I guess Metallica wasn't really hair metal, but they were the metal part. And um, and then there was the the REMs and the U2s and right. the Weezers and all that stuff. Yeah, yeah. And now it feels like, like I, I was going through an OCD moment recently where I was making little um, tabs for all my records so I could put them in different categories. Oh, sure. And I spent forever. I was like, wait a minute, the Sonic Youth belong in punk or do they belong in modern rock? And you're right, just right. like you can't even classify stuff anymore. Yeah, which is, I guess which yeah. isn't a bad thing. I guess no, not at all. Not but at let all. it all blend together. Yeah. So, um, I so you had a band back in the day, and when we were talking before, and you mentioned the name Nimmer, that definitely set off something in my head. I was like, oh my god, I remember that, and I never yeah. would have thought of that. It was like Nimmer and um, um, Stella Blue was the other band from back around then with uh, my friends Matt and Jack and and Jason Milo and all them. Oh, okay. Um, so uh take me through Nimmer. What was how'd that get going? So that was kind of an accident for me. So Nimmer existed before I joined them. It was my brother and a couple other guys, and their bass player moved. Um I think he moved to California or something. So I offered just to so they could keep playing because they were getting ready to start gigging. I said, Well, if you want to keep practicing, I'll just sit in on bass at your practices until you find someone well then like three years went by and i was still just sitting in yeah quote unquote um but it was a lot of fun i mean it was a our drummer wrote most of the songs and they were super catchy power pop you know very weezer-esque um and at that time that stuff was really like pretty big there was another local boston band called Waltham that was kind of big at the time and and our other friend, Ben, the Shield of Vine, was really big at the time. Um, and they still kind of are around Boston. So we just, yeah, we would gig around Boston, Bill's Bar and the Middle East, TT's. And uh, it was a lot of fun. Um, you know, I'm not a bass player by trade, but, you know, it was a good time. And if you can play I guitar, love, you can play a little bass. Yeah. That's, and, you know, I love just playing in front of people. That's always been the the highlight for me when it comes to music so just getting to do that you know on a regular basis was you know that's the best practice you can rehearse all you want but until you do it in front of people at a regular clip um it's just not the same because you got to adjust to things like one gig our drummer forgot his cymbal bag yeah. so we had to do the first set for like you know, a handful of people like acoustically while he went back to the rehearsal space to get his cymbals. So, yeah. 
stuff the like that. Thing about playing live is that I found is that there are there are things that that you, you show up at the gig and something isn't going right, and there are things that nobody will ever notice except for you guys that are performing. Right. And then there are things that everybody notices that you're totally unaware of, like a microphone right. not sounding right, and that's right. what really you should be worried about. Yeah. Because I've definitely what you just said. It, I mean, I I've only ever played an instrument on stage, like in high school, like battle of bands, but I, I've rapped on sure. stage, you know, maybe scratched a little bit sometimes, and it's just yeah, yeah. so many things can go wrong. Oh, absolutely. And it's, you know, for have a whole room full of people, if you're lucky, looking at you while it happens, it's not always fun. Well, that was the thing. Like, my brother was very self-critical when it came to his playing. He's a great guitar player, great background singer. Um, But, yeah, he would have one little mess up during a show that 99.9% of people didn't even notice, but he knew it. And he just, he could never get past it. It would just bother him the rest of the show. And we tried to tell him, like, look, man, I'm just move past it and just keep playing it's, it's fine yeah. you know yeah 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 it's um it would be nice if people were paying that close of attention to notice those yeah things, exactly but, you know you mentioned performing at places like the middle east and bills and tts um mm-hmm. i i got i got a chance to perform in the middle east a couple times and that was for myself i never performed with the other two but it was after years of you know watching it being there oh, yeah. do you remember your first time playing in a venue that you had been to as a um, observer and what that felt like yeah i mean that would probably be um the bills gig because that was a great spot that that was right on lansdowne for those who don't know it's not it's 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 been gone for a while right no but i think they're bringing it back i I I keep hearing that yeah but i don't know if it's the same location it's probably just the name they're using again because it's recognizable and it was right but, there uh, where tequila, I don't know if tequila rain is, I don't even know what's still down there, but it, it was down across from Fenway at Lansdowne. So yeah, it's right near the place that doesn't exist anymore. Access was one of my favorite places. Yeah. Avalon, yeah. Um, actually, the Sundays, the one time I saw the Sundays was at Avalon. It was wound up being their last tour. But, wow. um, um, but yeah, we played at Bill's and it was, we weren't the headliner. We were opening for that band I mentioned before, Walt Band, but the place was packed. And, yeah. um, yeah, I mean, I'd been going to shows there for years at that point. Um, I don't know if you remember Groove of Small. Yes. But, um, yes. They were a fantastic band. Um, and we used to go see them there all the time. They played at Bills constantly. Um, so, yeah, to play on that stage was just really cool. And TT's too, when we played TT's eventually. Um, you know, I'd seen a bunch of shows there and um, Middle East as well. I hadn't been to the Middle East as much, but still, I knew the significance of it, especially in the Boston scene. So yeah, that was cool. There was a big, um, I don't want to say prick waving thing going on, but when it came to the Middle East, but at least in the hip hop scene, there was where it was like, okay, you played the Middle East, but did you play upstairs or downstairs? Right, right. Oh, you played downstairs, but when did you go on? And it was just like, that was like the thing of like, did you play? And then it was like, did you ever get to go in the back room at the Middle East? You know? Right. And then it's it's funny how like even in musicians get so competitive, it's, especially okay. if you're if you're headlining, you don't. But if you're on the opening act, then it's like everybody's just like, you know, right. what, you know. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But it's still, though, I remember the first time they gave me a performer's wristband at the Middle East and I was up on stage downstairs and I was just like, this wow. is, it was just, I was, you know, I think it was the only time I ever did. And it was, I didn't get to rap. I was just scratching, but it was still just one of those. Still, though. Yeah. yeah. They, they recorded albums here and you know actually my... no, i was just gonna say thinking of the middle east and scratching i saw a legendary show there with rozell and the executioners god 
Yeah, that was pretty amazing. It's funny, much of the executioners. I um, there's a coffee shop in downtown Northampton. I'll give them a quick shout out, the Roost. Um, and actually, I don't even know if I should because this person wants to be outed. But I was in there. Uh, I did. There was an opening act for the executioners a few years ago. This is many years ago. It's called Northern State, and there was this. Oh yes, the, I know Northern State. Yeah, the female Beastie Boys. So I used to yep. do their. Um, they got a really good review in Rolling Stone, like a five star review of like their demo in the early two thousand. And I was like, who are these people? So I looked them up, and I kind of became friends with one of the members who I haven't talked to in years. And then I was in the roost one day, and the person running it, I'm like, that looks like one of the women from Northern State. That's got to be sure, yeah. Then I see her on the news and I'm like, I think that's her. And I went in there the other day. I'm like, are you? And she was like, like pretty surprised to be recognized. Yeah, I, I think she that was. might have made her day. And uh, I don't want to be like, I know she oh, was I had a major when question. I recognized her. <laughs> yeah. Well, did you recognize her too? Oh, yeah. yeah. Oh, really? Oh, good. So, <laughs> that's funny. Yeah. I wanted to be like, I had a crush on you back in the day, but I was like, I think it was appropriate. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But we used to, I remember they opened the executioners and we got to go, they used to drive around in a Winnebago and we got to like go and smoke weed with them on the Winnebago oh, after nice. the show. That was like the highlight of my existence back then. Yeah, I, I met her, because uh, they, I don't know if they still do what the roost, they do karaoke there. Oh, really? And, yeah, and that's how I met her, uh, through a mutual friend who was good friends with her. And I was like, wait. She's in Northern State, right? And they're like, yeah. you know that is? I was like, yeah, I saw them a couple of times. So. The, the member that I knew um, Hester Prince from Northern State yeah. a little more than the others. And there was one day, it was maybe five or six years after I even like talked to her or whatever. And I saw her on a soy milk ad. Oh, was, really? And, and I, I'm like, I emailed her. I'm like, is that you? And she's like, yep, that's me. <laughs> And she was just playing at, she's a DJ now. I think she does a lot of work with Spotify. She just did a show at the Jane Club in LA, which is, um, I don't know. They're an organization that I think is run by June Diane Rayfield and some other people. Oh, okay. and it's it's yep. sort of to empower women in, in many different ways. And so it's similarly a great combination of their doing it together. So I was so happy to see that them still around. Of course, I asked Sprout if she was still working on music. And she said that, you know, mostly with her kids, but you know, I don't yeah. know. Maybe I'll get her on it. <laughs> just wants me on a track. Something. Yeah, get on a track. They were a big influence for me too, because you know this is a little off subject, but you know I started doing my rapping in the early two thousands, and there weren't a whole lot of people that looked like me. And it was like you could say, right. well, everybody saw Eight Mile and decided they could be a white rapper. Right, but right, for right. me, it was like I saw people like the Beastie Boys, and then you know someone like Northern State, and I was like, oh, that's sort of it gave me inspiration to to get sure. up there. You know? Well, and so, I know you're kind of you know, friendly with esoteric. So I'm sure he was a big influence too. He was, I mean, it's, he's a huge influence, you know, he's just, it's one of those, and it's funny, like, I, I don't really, I, we're, I'd say we're friendly, I wouldn't, I wouldn't go so far as step over the line and call us friends, but I'm always right. surprised whenever I see him somewhere and he recognized me, but I went to like every one of their shows, and they were a group that I just saw that last night they played in Copenhagen on the Zarface oh, yeah. tour, and I used to see them at, remember the living room in Rhode Island? Yep. That place should have been condemned. I don't know what's oh, there yeah. now, but it was like, you could literally be at the urinal and still watching the show. Yeah. <laughs> and I used to go see them there. I saw them play at the BU uh, basement a bunch of times. And I mean, just, nice. yeah. It's a, oh, they were yeah. great. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And actually played out here recently. And uh, he's on my, I got a song with him and Cool Keith on my album, so. Oh, nice! I'm excited about that. I'll have to send you a link yeah. to it so you can check it out because the album absolutely been out for a while. But I'm excited to get feedback. So let's talk a little more about you here. So yeah, 
How, well, how long did Nimmer last? Uh, in the, in that iteration, uh, with me and the band, I'd say about three years. And then, um, uh, we kind of stopped gigging and, but we were still rehearsing. And like I said before, like playing live for me is the thing. I'm not going to rehearse a bunch if we're not playing shows. It's just, right. you know, um, it'd be one thing if I didn't have a day job. Um, but you know, trying to balance both without the payoff of playing shows. Um, not that it was a literal payoff. We made like no money, but yeah. that was fine with me. I wasn't trying to make money doing that. Someone handed me twenty dollars after a gig once, and I was almost felt embarrassed to take it. Oh, yeah. I'm like, wait a minute, you give me any money? <laughs> right. I mean, not that artists shouldn't be paid, but right. you know, again, that wasn't what I was in it for. Um, so yeah, after I kind of stepped away from the band, they just kind of stopped. We had recorded two like EPs worth of demos. Um, which still, I mean, I can say this cause I didn't do the actual recording, but they sound great. Like, um, we'll probably talk about it when we talk about my record, but recording to tape, which we did those demos, um, cause our singer had a, a 16 track reel to reel that we recorded our demos yeah. to. And I listened to those still, and we never even got the master and they still sound great. Um. So I'd love, I don't know if he even has the tapes. I'd love to get a hold of the tapes and get them mastered properly and press the vinyl because I think they'd sound amazing. But Yeah, it's funny you said that because like, I recently, um, Stella Blue, like I mentioned before, my friend Matt yeah. is a good friend of mine and um, those guys. I found their old tapes recently and I dumped them down and sent them to Matt, who was the guitarist, and he was like playing them for his kids. And I was like, these these sound pretty good. Like it was a little bit yeah. of... You know, I didn't do the work that somebody professional would do to them, but a little bit of work that can right. sound really good. And I was like, oh, yeah, I can sample this. Yeah, if you have the original tape too, especially, you can do all sorts of stuff with it. So, yeah, well, it's funny you mentioned um, the recording the tape because I was looking at the insert on your album before. There was a picture of what looked like a reel to reel. Did was oh, yeah. was this was this album recorded to tape or was um, yeah, absolutely wow in 2020 something. That's awesome. 2020, yeah. So one of the reasons I chose Wachusett, which is where I recorded it, um, is because they have a tape machine. So this album was kind of a, I guess, passion project for me. It was in the works for a long time. Um, the the kind of genesis of it started when I was living in Arizona. Um, I lived out there for eight years. Um, and I wanted to... There were a couple of reasons I wanted to record the tape. And even when I was living in Arizona, I was going to record it here in Massachusetts because I wanted people I knew to play on it. Mm-hmm. Um, like Leah and my friend Nick. Shout out to Nick Chisholm. That guy's great guitar player. Um, but I couldn't get it done when I was in Arizona. Was, the logistics were just, it was going to be too much. So when I moved back here, um, I made that kind of a priority. And so I, I looked for studios that had tape machines because one of the reasons I wanted to record tape is I can get a little in my own head when I'm home recording because I know there's like infinite tracks, right? infinite ways I can manipulate it. And you can still do editing and stuff on tape, but I mean, tape itself costs money. The time in a studio costs money. So I wanted to force myself to kind of just like make quick decisions, make like good decisions, but not like belabor every little yeah. thing. 
Funny you and mentioned Mike, that. There was a song on my 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 old album that I I recorded it on a we'll just say a feel good pill, and I literally at, the next day I looked back and I recorded this one line over a hundred times. I wow. just kept and like I probably used take three. I don't. Even, but I was just like, ooh, that's kind of embarrassing. <laughs> like, I'm like I didn't. I'm like I don't feel like Brian Wilson or anything. I just feel like some like head case trying to get something out. Right. But you know, yeah. But yeah so you're saying. But the, yeah, so Mike, the engineer and the owner of the studio, he was thrilled when I told him I wanted to use tape because his first words were like, wait, I don't have to look at a computer screen for the whole session. I was like, yeah, man. Like, <laughs> and no one ever uses this tape machine, um, which has some downfalls because it's, they're harder to maintain when they're not used as much. Because yeah. I don't know that anyone's making new real real tape machines. All the ones right. you see in studios now are vintage that have to be you know have a serious upkeep so vcrs um, you can't even get the parts to make a new vcr anymore. right so we did have a couple of days we lost because of some ghosts in the machine but he was great about it you know he was the other thing is we made this record in the middle of the pandemic so i started there started recording march 9th of 2020 and like literally like a week later the march world 9th r.i.p biggie Sorry. Yeah. <laughs> um, so we had like, I don't think people were allowed back in like spaces like that to like that July. And, oh, wow. And you had to be masked up even if you were. So that was one of the benefits of it, mostly just being he and I. We could mask up. And, you know, mostly I was in the, the kind of playroom while he's in the, the, monitoring room with the desk and the tape machine right. so we were separated most of the time anyways um and then the few you know when leah would come in or my buddy nick they were they did all their stuff in one day each i mean total time the album only took two maybe three weeks to record but because of all the time we had to spend away right, right. um it, it we finished mixing it on Halloween, that following Halloween. So, so of 2020 um, or 2021? Yeah. Oh, okay. So total, it was like seven months oh. of time, but in actual time spent recording and mixing, it was like three weeks. Yeah. So, and that's like, I mean, as I'm here shooting, I'm working on a movie for it to go along with my new album. And it's like, right. I could spend seven hours working on it and the camera is only rolling for about seven minutes. So it's like, there is a little bit that of the entire, it's like everything takes way longer than you think. And when you're in a recording oh, studio yeah. and you're like, okay, that buzz that my guitar makes usually isn't a big deal when I'm in my living room. But now that it's being right. recorded to expensive tape and that we had to like fix the machine right. and rent all the studio, it's like suddenly that's a big deal. You know, like have you ever seen 24 hour party people where they have to get something yeah. done immediately right. and they pull yeah. the entire drum set apart? yeah that's 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 so common oh sure and that's the other benefit about recording in like a quote-unquote professional studio is when i record at home i have to do everything myself like turn knobs and faders and stuff like that all i had to do was play you know when i was recording that record is just be in the room and play he was taking care of all the technical stuff and uh, he was great, you know, with the miking and all that stuff. And I, I really appreciate that stuff. I kind of kick myself for not going to school for that kind of thing because I think it would be a great 
even for my own knowledge, but even to make a career out of it would have been cool. Yeah, I studied on film at BU and I, I right. I've done very little work in film since then. But I would say the lessons I learned at BU, the degree has helped me get jobs, but the stuff I actually learned there has helped me in my quote unquote hobby or artistic life. Sure so much and just if you can edit back then we were literally cutting film with scissors right. or something in like keeping it together if you can do that you can do you know pro tools is like once you get over all oh, the yeah. error messages you're all good right yeah it yeah, is funny. Logic is I, I, compared yeah. to that stuff whenever i watch movies from like the 90s now and they're all shot on film and you can see that obviously film looks different than digital. It always blows my mind. I'm like, they, sp and I'm watching like um, the pallbearer with, um, with uh, what's David Schwimmer. And I'm like, oh, they, yeah. I'm like, they actually paid to shoot this on film and right. like, they don't shoot anything on film now. And there, because it, it does have that warm feeling that it almost makes something look more artistic just because it's on film. And maybe oh, that's sure. just my retro brain going, but like, with music, well, I definitely when I when I saw the the real the real on that, I was like, oh, that's why this you know it may just be in my head. But I'm like, that's why this this album feels so warm and, and lush and things like that. Well, yeah, I mean, there is physical things about tape, um, and I'm sure it's similar with film. That I mean, there's a certain level of like compression and saturation that happens with tape. That now the digital plugins are so close. Right. I mean. A lot of people thought I did it to tape because I'm like a purist, analog purist or whatever. And I appreciate analog, but that wasn't the main reason I was doing it. I knew I was going to get pressed to vinyl. So yeah, I wanted it on tape for that. But it was more about, like I said, like just being forced to make quick decisions and not linger too long on certain things. Um, and because... It was my first time in a professional recording studio. I was like, I want to see if I can do this like they used to do it. You know, it was kind of a challenge in that way to see if I could do it. So, yeah, because that's how you know. know you're actually more of a master of your craft. I'll be the first to admit that that situation for me sounds terrifying. For because like I know <laughs> I need, I know it's very rare for me to go into a recording session with everything done. Like if I if I'm going in with seventy five percent of what, like I usually leave about twenty five percent for the day like right. to, to figure out on the day and you can't i've recorded in a real studio at the very beginning of my career in boston because um actually my guest upgrade who's going to be on uh, who would have already been aired he was working at one of the bigger studios in boston so oh, okay. a lot of good opportunities to go in there and he really knew what he was doing and it was great but it was terrifying like your mistakes are amplified so yeah. much and there's a room full of people and um but the benefit of it though is the objectivity and that's something that for me, I've learned as I've got older, not only can, is it hard to be objective about your own music, but your own ears will lie to you after about an right. hour of recording. You're not hearing what you think you're hearing because, you know, for lack of a better yeah. term, you're damaging your ears. Sure. Um, what was that like? Did it help to you to have somebody objective in the room? Yeah. And that was another reason I wanted to do it and, you know, not just do it all myself in my home studio is because you do like a lot of musicians, we fall into patterns. Um, you know, it was, I wanted someone to say like, yeah, maybe try this instead, you know, just because I'm not precious about it. Like, right. um, I love collaborating. Like, I much prefer to collaborate than do everything to myself. Um, I've learned that about myself as well, too. Yeah, it's just more fun to bounce ideas off of people and, you know, get a different perspective, especially on anything you're doing. 
So that was great to have someone, you know, and he's, it helps that he's a musician as well. He's not just an engineer, like he plays upright. He played all the drums on the record, which he did in like a day and a half, which was awesome. Um, I still be figuring out which way to hold the sticks. I'm such not a, yeah. I'm a terrible drummer. Drumming to me yeah, is I like mean, skiing, where like if I and I don't ski, but like when you get up for like the, when the first time I got up and skis for like 30 seconds, I was like so in my head, I felt right. instantly over. And when I'm playing drums, and the second I get in the groove, I get in my head about it, and then that's right. over. Yeah, drums is uh, you know, again like my dad was a drummer, so I always have a great affinity for drummers, but. Um, yeah, I I don't know. Even if I could play the drums well enough to do them myself, I don't know that I would have. Just because, yeah. especially recording like that with tapes. You know, that's the only time I had to press any buttons is when he was recording the drums. I just had to hit press and, you know, play and stop uh, and rewind the tape. But um, yeah, he was great. It's uh, funny you mentioned that because. Um, we, you and myself and this other person, Dan Bazzoli, who we've known from back yep. in the day, have been sort of working on a couple things ourselves. Like Dan, he actually sent me some new stuff yesterday. I was going to talk to you okay. about, we talked about maybe the three yep. of us jamming together in person at some point soon. If you're sure. down. Um, I floated the idea around of calling ourselves microwave sushi. So you can let me know later if you like that. Or not. <laughs> but like he sent me, um, he just sent me some clips of him recording on his iPhone and I just looped them and turned them into beats and sent them to you when you dumped down some great guitar stuff and I put a little bit of bass on it and all of a sudden you kind of got something. Right. You know, I'm still working the lyrics and stuff, but like to get ourselves in, the, in our own room, we can actually work off each other, I think would be really cool. Oh yeah, absolutely. Um, you know, that is, I will say that is the beauty of all this kind of digital recording now. It's so much easier to collaborate, even if you're thousands of miles away. Yeah. Like you and I did, like I've done, I have a buddy in Arizona. Um, I still collaborate with, he, he's a great singer songwriter. Um, and he'll send me like him singing and playing acoustic to like a click track. And then I arrange like drums, more guitars, bass, everything around it. And I did the same with Leah actually on some of her songs. And it's, you know, now that I'm back in Massachusetts, I can collaborate with her or you in person. But I do like that about all this digital uh, recording capabilities that allows you to do that. Yeah, speaking so of Leah, I, so there was a few songs at the end of her episode of this podcast. I think yep. you were on at least one of those, right? Was There was, there yeah. was one called F-A-R. Yeah, feel, that, all right. yep. feel All Right. Yeah, that's the one that I played on and um yeah we did like three or four songs like that and uh you know I, again i love collaborating and she's obviously a great musician in her own mm -hmm. right so she i love what she did on my record with the keys and the backing vocals yeah let's um, talk a little more about your album actually so yeah, yeah i um i heard i've obviously had the vinyl for this couple yeah, times let's do it again <laughs> yesterday um really enjoyed it i um one thing I, I was trying to think of it's always tough to do the comparisons but like I just for the sake of people listening and you can tell me if this is fair or not. It felt to me like a slightly like a more of an electrified Jayhawks to some degree, if you're familiar with them. Sure. Yeah. And um, it's the, kind of an the, all country vibe. To yep. That. Yep. And the, the lyrics felt for some reason I kept thinking of cream. I don't know why, but that seemed to be the lyrics. That, oh. Like it. And like I really dug it. Like it's um, and those are bands yeah. that I love. And you're playing on this is really excellent. Um, Thank you. What? 
so we talked a little bit about the recording process here, but um, how about the songwriting process? How long have some of these songs been around for? Um, what do you, what do you guys say yeah. about that? <laughs> so um, that's kind of a, a mixture of songs that are literally like almost decades old, and some are that were like I wrote while we were recording. So all the music was pretty set um as far as like what i wanted to record musically but a lot of songs never had lyrics um so i kind of it worked out in a way because i um you know this was right after george floyd and a lot of that stuff was happening yeah i could feel a little bit which, of that coming through which was terrible obviously yeah. but it gave me, you know, definitely inspiration to write. You know, there's a song on there called While They Were Marching that, uh, you know, has elements of that. But then there's a song, like the first song, Anyone for Tea, which is a political song as well. That actually came about, you know, at that point, 10 years earlier. Uh, a lot of the ideas of that song, unfortunately, they still ring true. I would just say that's it, yeah. <laughs> There's a song on my uh, album where I talk about a little bit of like the that same stuff, and um, I played it for someone. They're like, "You better get that out quickly, or it's not going to be relevant." I'm like, "Oh, honey, <laughs> like, yeah, yeah, I wish yeah. that was the problem." Yeah, right. Um, and then like the song "Rolls of Aspen Trees." That's so. My mom sadly passed away, um, like right as I started, right before uh, this record kind of came to fruition. Um, so I had to write a song on there for her obviously um that was about a trip we took to arizona um when she first got sick because she never when i lived out there she had never gotten to visit me out there so i took her and her husband out there on a trip and it was great because you know she got to see the grand canyon and um it was a very uh great bonding trip for us um yeah it was pretty I'm glad I got to do that. But yeah, a lot of the songs were. So this record is songs that I kind of wanted to put to bed. A lot of these songs that I've been working on for years and I'm very proud of them. I love them. But I was like, all right, I need to get these down, whether it be on tape or whatever, and just kind of let them go. Not that I would never play them again live or anything. Right. But just to kind of move on to something new. Right. You'll stop um, working on them, essentially, because I know exactly. from my, my album, that my drinking song, The Children I'm coming next year, half of it was recorded in the late 2000s, half of it was recorded in the past year or so. And one of the songs, the first verse is from like 2006 and the second one is from last year. And right. I, it's like I kind of played with that idea. But like at a certain point, you're like, OK, this just has to this just has to be what it is and get out there and then I can move on to something else, because the second album is always different than the first album. Yeah, I mean, that song on my record, Smiling Tyrants, the first verse I wrote, it took like five minutes to write, and I wrote it in 2004, and then I never wrote another verse until yeah. like 15 years later almost. That's and something that comes up a lot on this podcast, is people's relationship with their old work, whereas I'm one of those people who I just found this old notebook of mine from back in the day, and oh, nice. there's tons of tons of stuff in here that I yeah. probably might go into a song that I record this week, and right. I've always been like, 
it's looking back on my old stuff is an ability to is is the chance opportunity to access a version of me that kind of no longer exists but it's exactly. still it's true to who i am and who i was but a lot of people are so like oh, i don't want people to hear the flaws i don't want people to hear this and that but right. i'm like i just how do you obviously you, you use old stuff but do you have any feelings like that about your old about old work and yeah i struggle with that like you know some of the songs you know, I, I had more songs that could have made the record, but, you know, I because I was getting vinyl pressed, and like there are literal physical limitations to how many songs can be on a vinyl record. I so was, it was cutting, like, shaving stuff off the everything yeah. to try to get my album, right. if I want to get a vinyl down, I know exactly what you're talking about. And then try yeah, to plan, like, so where, it's not only is the album short enough, but the songs have to be cut off in the right way so that right. each side is short enough, you know? Exactly. So, and that's the same when you record the tape. So like a tape reel, a two-inch tape what? reel, is like 15 minutes worth of music. That's so, it, huh? Yeah. So, wow. I mean, you can fit a lot of tracks on there, but you have to... Luckily, I had demo versions of all these songs, so I knew uh, roughly how long they were. So we had to... Like, you literally have to sit down and think, all right, how are we going to sequence this just on the tape reels when we record it so we know we have enough room? Because like I said, tape is expensive. I think... Two inch tape now is like three hundred bucks a roll. Wait a minute, for fifteen minutes. Real. Yeah. So it's it's wait a minute. I, gonna, I, forgot, I forgot to ask you before. So for like fifteen minutes, a two inch tape is like three hundred dollars. Yeah, a reel of two inch tape is around wow. three hundred dollars. So, I you know like if you're gonna do forty five minutes, that's three rolls of right. Three reels. That's like a thousand dollars once you start including yeah. the shipping and the taxes and all that stuff. Right. So, and, and finding people that still manufacture two inch reels, you know, right, right. is the other thing. So, but yeah, so like, as far as like my old stuff, you know, like I said, some of these songs are old. Um, and even some of them that aren't quite as relevant to me anymore. I was debating like, uh, but like you said, it's like, well, that still was my life. Like that's right. still, and so I didn't try, I didn't get too hung up on that, you know, because if a song is a good song, um, whether it's still relevant in the artist's life or not. Uh, right, because eventually old becomes timeless. Right. You know, if it's good, if it's old and it's good, then it's timeless. So that's sort of, yeah. there was a part of me that I'm like, I still like this. I mean, because especially if you have some stuff that you can say we used to do that is objectively terrible. Because I have right. some of that stuff too. Right. Okay, oh, well, sure. I can tell yeah. the difference, you yeah. know. So the stuff that lasts obviously lasts for a reason. Right. I know there's a band called Best Coast. And yes. They, yeah. they have a big song called Boyfriend that was on their first album. And I've seen them three times now. And every time before they play that song, Beth, the singer, says, I hate the song. I, I it no longer pertains to me, but I know you guys love it, so we're gonna play. Yeah. So like, it just goes that way. I saw Radiohead but, once, and they played "Creep," and I felt lucky. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. At least I think um, they do. Maybe my memory might have just crammed that in there. Well, I know they'll play it. They'll break it out every once in a while. I saw but, the only uh, time I saw them was the day before I left for college, and it was on the OK Computer tour in '97. Oh, wow. I think the Dandy Warhols opened too. Oh sure, that sounds about right. Yeah, and I I don't even think I'd heard OK Computer at the time, but it was an amazing. I had a great poster for that show that disappeared somewhere, unfortunately. But oh yeah, it is what it is. Uh, but yeah, so this record was just yeah, I uh, it was good to get it done. Um, 
there was like two things on my checklist around that same time. And one was to do a three week trip to Australia. And one was to record this album. And I got them both done within like a year of each other. So I was like, all right, those two goals are off the checklist. Did so, you get to Australia before the pandemic? Yes. Okay. Cause I, I know I've, I have friends that live out there and they've had a lot of trouble getting home and seeing family and things like that. Yeah. It's, yeah. You know, it's, yeah. Yeah. I, I got in there like a year, just a, yeah, it was exactly a year before the pandemic hit. So I lucked out. Although, to be honest, if I got stuck there, I wouldn't mind it. Yeah, I know. It's I haven't been there, but it's one of those places that I'd love to. If I can handle the plane trip, I would love to. You know. Yeah, you get you can't you can't hate planes if you're going to go there. But, and they love. Um, there's but, a lot of a great music down there, and they love a lot oh, yeah. of American music. Like I can mention before, the Lemonheads. They've they've always been really big down there, and they're mm-hmm. one of my favorite bands of all time. You know. Well, I will say, if you get there and you get to Melbourne, they have great record stores in Melbourne. Like, oh, that's I found an original pressing of Balloon Mind State there that I would never have found here. Oh, the um, the De La Soul album. Yeah. Yeah. Well, those are all coming back. They just they're, they're well, I don't know if that. One I worked. know. Yeah, and I I, I didn't amazing. buy the Three Feet High and the Rising one. It's already sold out. But I'm like, ah, I oh, can't. They'll get it repressed. Time. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I, I figured that now that they now that they're pressing those De La Soul albums, they're probably never yeah. going to stop pressing them. You know. Well, and that's the thing too. Right now, vinyl pressing is such in such high demand, and I don't know if you heard one of the major vinyl pressing plants burnt down. Really? Yeah. So that set everything back with vinyl getting pressed in a lot of places. But they are opening a new vinyl pressing plant in California. I think I read, and so that'll help ease. Um, and Jack White, uh, he's opened at least one pressing plant, maybe two now. Um, so, um, as a fellow vinyl head, I appreciate that. But, I've turned into in the past year or so, one of those people who was like, things sound better on vinyl. I want the experience of listening to the whole album. And then the third thing for that is I need, as somebody who sits at my desk a lot of the day at work, I need an excuse to get up every 22 minutes and right. vinyl gives me that. And it's, sure. It's I I don't know I never thought I'd be I had to struggle my my turn I have the same turntables that I used back when I used to do a little DJ I bought like the state of the art rave turntables like 22 years yeah. ago and they're great but there's they're they're too much muscle for me and I, it's like there's right. too many things that and I had to strip it all down and make it simple so I don't get all this high right. sound but there's just something about listening to something on vinyl and it's it's a different experience it's well and know. that's the thing too you know again people they kind of poo poo vinyl listening and think it's like you know oh you're a snob or whatever and that's not why i listen to vinyl it's for the experience of it it forces you to kind of pay more attention to the music and like you said get up put the side but you know like when i was a kid i look at the jacket and look at the inserts like yeah it's yeah, a more delicate process because I think yeah. it's like, you know, your phone, it's just seen you. I remember I was listening to like a little Kim album on vinyl about a month ago. Mm-hmm. And for some reason, it just struck me that every inch of this album was blood, sweat and tears. And it's an, and right. I thought about that in a way that I probably wouldn't think about it, about if it was just streaming from my phone and I could turn it off and on or whatever I wanted. It's just it, right. you feel the effort more a little bit, I think. Yeah, you know, and it's I think it's a more. uh like I said, tangible experience, yeah. um, which I think everyone could use a little bit more of with everything being instantly accessible and 
you know, streamable. And, um, and the other thing as an artist, um, if you want to support an artist, like if they have vinyl, I try to buy the vinyl because especially smaller artists, because that's just going to be likely the only way they make money. Yeah. Um, as far as selling their music, you know, obviously touring stuff and merch, but yeah, like if I see, you know, a local artist that I like that's selling vinyl, I always buy the vinyl. Me too. I um, actually just picked up a couple too, and I haven't listened to these yet, but I'll recommend them. Um, two of my friends from my old hip hop group, Judge D, uh, Rough Edges, oh, nice. I just picked this up, and then Oblivious and Cracks His Lack, Sediment Sedimentary Rose. Oh, nice. um, I, I've heard the albums, haven't played on vinyl yet. I, one thing that I, I do a lot, though, is that, like, so for me, a vinyl, become, vinyl becomes an event. And, like, I don't want to press play these records until I know I'm going to have the time to listen to them. Because I don't oh, want to sure. just put them yeah. on and then have it end and not no, really no, feel no. like I listen to yeah. it. Because, like, you don't want to waste that first listen. And right. um, I don't know. You're buying yourself an experience, which I think is really cool. If, if you yeah. love the music that much. Do you have any memories? So you mentioned your dad and the influence he had in his music. Were there records from his collection that really take you back to childhood? Because for me, oh, absolutely. For me, as odd as it is, it was Huey Lewis and the News Sport was the one that got sure. played and played and played, and that's yeah. the one that kind of stuck with me. My dad was a big Clapton fan, and I don't like a lot of Clapton solo stuff, but I love like Cream and things like that. Yeah, my dad too loves Cream. Yeah, yeah. And um, so, what were some of the records that that really woke your woke your eyes to music when you were at a young age? So. Um... For my parents, um, my mother, oddly enough, was a huge Journey fan. She loved Journey. And I, I just you know, found, oddly enough, to not interrupt you, but I didn't realize, I have all my old Atari games on the wall. There was a Journey yeah, yeah. Atari game called Journey oh, Attack. And I had it for years, and I didn't know what Journey was back then, but it was only recently, I'm like, oh, this, I found the booklet for it that I still have. I mean, this is the band Journey at an Atari game. Yeah, yeah. With everything running from fans, but yeah, Journey. Okay, so that was the... More than the music, actually, was the jacket of their album Escape that is visceral to me because I don't know if you remember the jacket of that. The cover was like a scarab breaking out of this like crystal yeah. ball, but it was embossed. So I remember as a kid running my hand over the cover of that yes. record and feeling the embossment of the. So like, I have that record still, just if only for that fact. Like it brings me back to that. But yeah, like like I said, Cream. My dad, um, because he played in a lot of cover bands, he introduced me to songs like, like I knew who Zeppelin was, and I liked them. I had, I think I had Zeppelin two and Zeppelin four on cassette because four had Stairway and and two had a whole lot of love. But he was playing in a band at the time that played Dancing Days, oh, and I was I just watching them. Yeah, I was watching them rehearse, and they played that song. I was like, oh, I love that song. Who's that? And he's like, that's Led Zeppelin. I'm like, it is? Because I didn't, you know, like. Yeah. So, and he played, like, you know, they did um, a lot of Rascals. Like, he loved the Rascals and the Young Rascals. So, that record, the cover of Their Greatest Hits, it kind of looks like a Liechtenstein painting. It's all, like, dots. Um, yeah. That record, I remember looking at as a kid. And then my brother, like I said, like, he had you know, a bunch of the Van Halen stuff, like Diver Down, um, the first Van Halen record. And I remember him uh, and my mom fighting about ACDC because she got caught up in the the Christian hate of ACDC thinking it stood for, I think they thought it stood for like against Christ, devil's children or something like that. So she was 
giving them hell for that. But uh, so I remember those arguments when I was a kid. But do you, do you think the kids still have those arguments? Because I feel like I had to defend so. stuff at a young age that didn't feel like it. I don't know. It was just everybody thought music was going to rot your brain. And yeah, yeah, yeah. I don't. I well, go the back PMRC to, was big then. You know, the oh, whole yeah. Tipper Gore and all yeah. that stuff. I always go back to, um, for me, the Rodney King tape was a huge influential moment oh, yeah. in my life. And I and Absolutely. I was really big into um, Ice-T and, and Body Count. And they yep. put out that Cop Killer song that I was listening to yep. the other day. It still holds up. But like I remember he was saying in Ro- the interview, I think J- that Jello Biafra from the Dead Kennedys did with him in Rolling Stone not long after that. And he said something about how like there's nothing in that song that's as horrible as what those cops were laughing about on the radio. After. Exactly. And like right. that, that quote stuck with me for years. And you're like, that is, it's like the idea that we can somehow compare what someone says on a record to like the, the near death beating of right. a man for no reason on the side of the road is just insane. But that is what, that's what happened back then. Well, and that's like the argument people make, like, you know, God forbid someone see a bare bottom on TV or something like that, or but you can see like, someone getting shot like in a movie a hundred right. times or whatever and that's fine for network tv but it's you know that's saying like music like that was back then they were talking about like music makes kids kill people and stuff you play records right. backwards and all that <laughs> nonsense and it's like <laughs> yeah it's <clears throat> that was nuts <laughs> yeah it's hard to believe nowadays that that was and i'm sure there's still pockets of that going on but oh yeah yeah um, i mean we do live in a very liberal part of the of the country i'm sure there's yeah i'm sure there's somewhere some someplace somewhere somebody is starting up a steamroller right now to go over a pile of cds and to what end i don't know but like for my musical journey like i feel like i was lucky in the first pieces of media i owned like like the first tape I ever owned was Run DMC Raising Hell. That's a good start. Yeah. Mine was yeah, thriller. Yeah. Like, oh, well, that's, you know, I mean, that's an iconic album. Yeah. Um, but, and then like the first CD I got was The Low End Theory. Oh, nice. That was one of my so, first two. My very first CD was Totally Crossed Out by Criss Cross. Oh, uh, sure. My, my second one was the second Marky Mark and the Funky Punch album, not the Good Vibration, oh. but another one. And then it was MC Brains. Uh, so, yeah, I my CD career wow. started out so hard. But that Criss Cross album still rocks. Oh, sure. I mean, they had great producers. Was Dallas Austin involved in them? I think he was, and Jermaine Dupree was very yeah. involved in that. And I think I actually heard recently that Tretch from Naughty by Nature might have written some of the raps on that album. Because I think he and Jermaine oh, Dupree yeah. had a falling out for years, and they might have been around some of that stuff. Which Tretch yeah. is one of the most underrated MCs. Of the oh, absolutely. Yeah, yeah. So you mentioned Raising Hell. Well, did you, um, I know for me, we grew up in the same area. I felt like I was the only person listening to rap music, really, or one of the few people willing to admit. And obviously, you and I know each other. That. We didn't know each other that well back then in yeah, small yeah. school, but I, you know, we probably weren't talking music or anything. We might have had like art class away together. I don't even remember. Right. But um, what was, was hip hop a huge influence on you? Because my first album was Thriller. My second album was Beastie Boys, Licensed the Ill, and then He's the right. Rapper, I'm the DJ by Jazz Jazz oh, and sure. Freshman. And those all hold up. You know, so oh well, and Jazzy Jeff is still a legend. I mean, that's an absolute legend. I tried to get him in my album, and I did not get a response. But <laughs> well, <laughs> I think his I'm wife's sure his manager. I, I sent her a couple oh, yeah. of emails, but never got anywhere. So, 
Yeah, I mean, you'd never know it listening to that rec- my record. Uh, but yeah, hip hop was a huge influence and still is a huge influence on what I do. Like, um, I kind of really latched on to the early 90s hip hop um, theme, like Native Tongues, you know, Tropical Quest, Dela, um Black Sheep, Jungle Brothers, all that. Black stuff. Sheep, Jungle Brothers. And then, like, I worked at General Cinema then. Oh, yes. um, so I worked with a guy there that I'm still friends with. He introduced me to a lot of stuff like the Artifacts, which their first record is still like top five hip hop albums for yeah. me ever. I love that record. Um, but just the production and that stuff. Obviously, I love the lyrics and, and the MCing, but you know the stuff like the Uma and like even on to like Jay Dilla yes. and that more atmospheric kind of stuff um that atmosphere actually yeah um yeah, going into that stuff um just the production on that stuff was just i i you know i loved um you know the run dmc stuff and that early like l cool jail the def jam stuff um but you know it just wasn't as intricate production and kind yeah, of interesting so to me it was, um, you know, it, they were still kind of figuring out what hip hop was. Because even right. in like the early 90s, you know, people like Run DMC almost felt like they were passe around that time. Right. And they they obviously weren't. And they they can't. So people like LL Cool J, I think he was, I don't know where his career was before Mama said knock you out. I know it would be big, but I think he'd been a little bit on the downtrend. And a lot well, of there was always guys, rumors that he had like a ghostwriter on some of that stuff. Yeah. Know? I don't know if that was ever true. But... I don't know. Which whatever I mean I'm not. Yeah, I mean Dr. Dre didn't. Like, it's, it's it's weird when it comes to rap that some people want to want to be mad about that in some instances, but not yeah. others. But like Dr. Dre didn't write a lot of his own lyrics and and things like that. It's, well, it's, no one got mad at Elvis for not writing any of his own. Right. Or like, Sinatra, so, you know. It's yeah. it's it's there's all then there's also the thing where it's like you know Taylor Swift writes all of her own songs, and I'm like that's what you're supposed to be doing. Yeah, <laughs> like, yeah, yeah. It's like, yeah, that's don't, not like we're giving credit for that yet. Yeah, what do you want a cookie? Right. Like, yeah, 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 exactly um but yeah i mean you look at like i mean you're talking about aerosmith that armageddon song they didn't write that song oh yeah that's a good point they're probably 27 writers on that song no that was um what's her name she's literally like a billionaire because she wrote that she wrote um my heart will go on oh and like all these oh and uh the brian adams robin hood song oh she wrote that brian adams didn't write that song Mm -hmm. wow so, so she's literally that like i wish i could diane warren that's her name oh yes i she, know that name yes yeah she's literally like a billionaire from writing songs so those days um, are over <laughs> yeah um but yeah i going back to like yeah 90s hip-hop um especially like daylight like pasta news i put his lyrics up there with like someone like bob dylan like people revere bob dylan for his right. poetry and I feel like Posthumus is right up there. Like some of his, like uh, he has a line um, on Balloon Mind State. I forget the song, but it's I'm an I'm an early bird, but the feathers are black, so the apples that I catch are usually all worms. Like that line is unreal to me. It's nasty. Um, so I always appreciated that and the sampling. You know, they did like. Unique jazz samples that 
you wouldn't know otherwise. Um, and they were taking a lot of risks because hip hop was not oh, yeah. there when that happened. That that was no, not at all. You know, there were there wasn't the pasty the neon flowers. There's none of that stuff. Right. Yeah. You know, and and then that kind of went into like the whole Rockus Records scene, which I loved. You know, was, do you know who you know how Rockus Records got started? Speaking of billionaires, that the guy who funded Rockus Records was Rupert Murdoch's son. Oh, for real? <laughs> yeah. And so that was started on Murdoch money. Wow! Yeah, that, I, that's, that's a lot of reconciling I've, to do. I know. Deal with for those artists, I've learned and forgotten that fact numerous times, and every time I relearn it, I'm like, "Oh my god!" <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah, I know. Well, so sorry. Um, <laughs> no, no. I, I said, like I said, that's, I'm sure that's a lot harder for the actual artist than it is for me to reconcile that yeah. bit. But, but yeah, I mean that stuff was great too. I mean. Um, Mad Lib and his production's great and um, I think some of the lyricists out of there like Shadam Sadiq and um, Farrell Monch oh god those guys are just, and it's awful. funny you mentioned Bob Dylan um, and I feel I say this to some people and they give me crap for it but my favorite Bob Dylan album is Bringing It All Back Home and um, the first half of that album sounds a lot like like Subterranean Homesick Blues sounds like a rap song and Maggie's Father right. sounds like a rap song and yep. Bob Dylan's 150th Daydream but he's essentially rapping mm -hmm. yep. and it sounds dope <laughs> like you can you can see right. why the Beastie Boys sampled them in the in the right. um, 90s and probably got sued for it but yeah well um but even that, I mean, it's it's a horrible rap, but you know, you have that Blondie song where she raps. Yeah, rapper's delight. Yeah. Fab five ready. <laughs> yeah. Um, but you know, she she also was part of that scene. I mean, hip hop and punk were like right. They were hand in hand at that time because they were so on the outskirts of everything else. They kind of bonded. I think a lot of those groups bonded over being the outcasts from like mainstream music yeah it's funny you mentioned so. that i'm actually the next interview i'm doing for the podcast is about basquette and i just watched oh, a documentary nice. on him the other day and there was deborah harry there was fat yep. freddie there was yep. um who's the other one just oh thurston moore was in it and it just reminded yep. you how these were you know you take a group like bad brains who was a, a black punk band it's like yep. that was sort of like the those those groups really did have a big cross-section there and i think a right. lot of people a lot of people think of punk as angry music and probably sometimes go to the far of thinking it's almost skinhead music which right. for the most part it's not it's 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 very accepting it's it's that idea right. of like we can all do this it's, it's the energy you bring to it and that is a lot right. of hip-hop in it as well yeah and that's one of the things i loved about operation ivy going back to them is you know they were all about unity they had a song called unity yeah and it was talking about that stuff because you know like a lot of genres of anything when you get an extremist and yeah, they were skinhead punk groups. They're going to get some press because it's right. shocking and all that. But, you know, to have all the other bands lumped in with that is just ridiculous. And it's like they always wanted to. They, it's like I mean, George Carlin had a bit about they're always looking for ways to divide you. And they don't. Oh, yeah. It's like there's all these things that, that we have in common that really bring us together. But the media seems to always want to be there to sort of spread you apart. It's There's never right. a story on like, hey, we're at a punk show and look at how well these people are getting along. Right, right. It's always like, yeah. oh, so-and-so did this and then this happened right. and now we're banning everybody. 
So what about upcoming music for you? Are you working on um, a new album or what do you got in the works? Yeah, so I've, uh, you know, I'm working on, once this record was done, I kind of shifted to, like, because this record is, again, it's songs I wrote, so I'm not going to say it's not what I want to do. But the stuff I gravitate more towards is more atmospheric. Like, you and Lee were talking about Tycho. Um, I love that music and, um, my guitar playing going back to the Sundays, I feel like fits that style more than, you know, like a traditional rock kind of vibe. Mm -hmm. So, um, yeah, like I've been working on a bunch of, I hate to call it electronic cause like I'm using guitars and, right. um, you know, the drums, I'm not playing drums, but the drums I'm using are more like uh, conventional kits, not like electronic drum kits. Yeah, it's like the beeps and boops. It's the, because you can get yeah. pretty, that's the thing about about um like virtual drum machines now. Yeah. Uh, you can get some pretty amazing sounds out of them. Oh, absolutely. I mean, the, the IRs they use now are just, you know, they record real drums. and um, But yeah, so I'm using a lot more like, synths and keys and stuff for kind of more ambient washes and things of that nature I, and again i love to collaborate like this stuff is all instrumental right now but that's i want it like i tend to gravitate towards female singers like all my favorite Same singers tend to, like yeah. sade um astero yeah um for me it's karen out. carpenter which people always laugh at me about i'm a huge carpenters oh. fan <laughs> She's amazing. And I'm sure you've seen that clip that's been going around of her doing that drum solo on like some, I mean, she was amazing. Yeah. But yeah, I, I name I checked just, her in my most, I wrote a verse about drums for my, my song Seinfeld that's out now. And in the, in the last oh, yeah, line yeah. is, um, um, some of them use and basically I'm in love with the ghost of Karen Carpenter, which is absolutely sure. true. Yeah. Um, but yeah, stuff like that. I'd love to get, you know, a female voice on there, um, for some of these tracks. Um, but yeah, like that's kind of what I'm focusing on right now. Um, I mean, I know you follow my Instagram, so I'll every once in a while I'll post a pedal uh, pedal board picture, and it's just like people are like that's a lot of knobs, you know, and a lot of buttons. But um, there's a there's a a rhyme and a reason, despite yeah. what it may look like. But you know, I'm not a purist when it comes to guitar either. Like I. I'm not afraid to make the guitar not sound like a guitar. Right. You know, it just happens to be the instrument I'm most comfortable with. But if yeah. I can get similar sounds of like a synth or something else by using the guitar, I'm going to do that just because it's easier for me to play that. Yeah. I'm not a good enough keyboard player to play some of the things I want to come through a keyboard. But um, there's a, a synthesizer that came out almost 25 years ago now. Called a microcord. Oh, I got one right here. Yeah. Is that so? I this that's thing, right? Yeah. Yep. And I bought that when they first came out, and they still make them because it's legendary. It sounds yes, that thing. awesome. That thing, as far as gear, that might be one of the most influential things on my art. Like when I got that, I was living with three Tufts vet students, and I had the the attic room and 
I had my little recording. I was recording to a, an eight track that recorded the zip disc. That's how long ago this was, <laughs> kids. Yeah, um, but yeah, I was more inspired by that little synthesizer than almost anything I've ever had gear-wise. And I just would go up there in Woodshed and write all these. And I still have the songs. I'd love to redo them just to make them a little, not necessarily change the songs themselves, but just like record them better. Like yeah. with a, you know, now that the technology is caught up, um, you know, I could just feel like they would sound a lot better if I re-recorded some of that stuff with the the yeah. software I have now. But yeah, that's kind of the stuff I'm doing now. It's more like ambient, like the stuff we collaborate. Like again, I love hip hop, so I'd love to do like more hip hop stuff. Um, obviously not rap, but just like do beats and stuff like that. I've yeah. done stuff like that in the past and. Um, I, it's funny. My, I used to be really into making beats, but, and I still enjoy it, but I, I have a hard time making, when I make beats, I always go too far and it becomes something that's very hard to rap over. And I realize that I think I'm better when I, when I use beats that other people have either collaborated with me on or made completely themselves. I just, I can't tie up the bow on it. I I don't know. Most of my songs in my album are ones that um, were co-produced by somebody else. I think Craig Cameron plays guitar in a couple of them. Oh, nice. And um, yeah, there was so long ago. (laughs) I think he recorded all those parts in like 2006 or something. He's a great guitar player though. Yeah, he is definitely. It's funny to talk about the purists because I was talking to, I had um, my man Aztec on here recently, and he, we were talking about early 2000s hip hop, and we were talking about how there's so many people who are like, yo, we're bringing it back to 94, we're bringing it back to 92. And I'm just like, well, there's still tons of records of 94, 92 that I haven't heard yet. And if I had a choice between listening to something made now that sound like that or something like that that I haven't heard yet, I'm going to pick that. And some people really get caught up in the past of like, oh, no, 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 oh, no, no. I lost my virginity in 1994. So all music right. achieved perfection then. You know, that's just right, right, yeah. to, I don't know. That's the same with SNL, Saturday Night Live. Yeah, yes. People always think the, the the cast that was there when they were in high school was the best cast ever. Like, right. Even though at the time just, they were probably saying how bad it was. Exactly. And like, yeah, I, it drives me crazy when I'm like on these online forums and stuff and people are like, there's no good music being made today. I'm like, there's so much good music. There's more than like, ever. Everybody yeah. can make it. Yeah. It's harder to sift through, I guess, because you don't have like three radio stations or whatever. And, you know, back in the day, radio stations weren't formatted. So they would play like Marvin Gaye and then Led Zeppelin and then like the Carpenters and then Black Sabbath. Like now it's more formatted, but, you know, for all of its evils that streaming brings, and I definitely have issues with it monetarily the way they compensate artists but it is good that like you know like i wouldn't have known a candidate if it wasn't for my fiance she's the one who introduced me to them because she was listening to something else and they suggested cannons and you know she played it for me and i was like ah i love this band like and you know they're one of my favorite bands now so Uh, yeah and that could happen before but it was more word of mouth right it's it's it was harder and I, the thing with, with streaming that I remind myself is that, okay, if more and more people can make music, that means there's more and more music in the world. And as with anything in the world, the more of there is, the less value there is to it. 
Right. And and it's like that's essential. That's and so, but to bring it full all the way around is there was a time when people were like, oh, I'm going to become a rapper and get rich, or I'm going to join a band and get right. rich. And I don't think that there's they maybe see a little bit with rap, but I think a lot of people are realizing that that's this is not a pathway to get rich. It's like no, it's not it's anymore. Become, it's become more like oh, people who write novels and knowing they're knowing they're not going to make money off of it. There's so much right. overhead involved and. It's it's really right. hard. People are doing because they love to do it now, or because they just want the attention. I don't know. Right. Well, even someone like Paul McCartney, like obviously that guy doesn't need the money. No. Like he does it because he loves it. Yeah. Like, and he still puts out new music. Like, you know, whether you like that new music or not, that's beside the point. The fact that he still works on new music and he's, you know, willing to keep creating is speaks volumes. He could have packed it in forty oh, yeah. years ago. You know, yeah. like. So, I mean, uh, even like someone like the Rolling Stones, you know, they're not like my favorite band and people are like, they should pack it in. But it's like, well, they love doing what they do. So, And what are they going to do too? It's like, you don't, it's like, you, you, I think you see in just day-to-day life that a lot of people retire and they don't know how to spend their time. And it's like, right. you see someone like... I don't want to pick on like Charles Barkley, but you know, he's not the yeah. same shape he was when he was in right. and it was just like you when you when you change your entire life that drastically, it can have a major impact on your on yourself negatively. And I think they probably, you know, I don't know how much Mick and um Keith even talk to each other. I believe I read right. Keith's uh, memoir that they haven't been in the same dressing room together in like 20, probably yeah, 30, 40 exactly. years. Exactly. So but this the, that's the thing too of being in a group is um it's sort of it's being in a group is sort of like being in a relationship with multiple people mixed with right. like being put being assigned like a group project at work or at school mm-hmm. because it's really 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 hard to have a good working relationship with anybody on anything and oh, also absolutely. a good friendship and have it not get in the way and then we spend all your time together then there's different personal influences like drugs right. and people are just dating the committee. It's mm-hmm. really, really hard to, to do that. It's oh know. yeah, being in a band is I mean, even when I was in Nimmer, like we were constantly bickering about silly stuff, you know, like yeah. what should we call this EP or like, you know, what should the flyers for the show look like? Or, you know, it's um even the band name, like yeah. People were always asking us what it meant and stuff like that but you know was it the best thing i don't know but it was there before i was even in the band so i was just like well what that's the name like what am i, I like do? <laughs> yeah i mean i was fine with it i was kind of ambivalent about it actually but you know the fun thing with that name was whenever someone would ask us about it, we'd always make up a different story of what it was um but you know band dynamic Again, like my fiance would say when I was still trying to like get a band going and you'd be like talking to people online or whatever. And she's like, this is like dating. Like it, it is the questions you yeah. ask and stuff. And I'm like, it is like it kind of is like dating. Like you're trying to get a sense of what the person is into and like what, you know, what, what their goals are. It's, it's, it's a funny comparison, but it kind of rings true. This podcast kind of like that too, because um, I've been I've been dating someone um, for a little while now. But I used to go on tons of like Bumble and Tinder and right, right. dates. And in the first date, like the, the first ten minutes before it started, before I met up with the person, I, my brain would be going, "Why are you here? You can just go home. Wait, why? It's like you feel nervous <laughs> for no reason. You're just like, I can just leave. This is like what." Right. 
and like and then the podcast for me is kind of the same way because it's like five or ten minutes before every episode i'm like why am i even doing this <laughs> like, you know i could be watching tv <laughs> and then once you start it's a whole different thing but right, there, right. there is something about the forcing yourself to do it but then it blows up i don't know i don't know if i could ever see myself being in a real band again like the idea of i pretty much quit I was in a group with three or four with three dudes years ago, Mike Monarchy. And the idea of like going on the road to me was like, no, oh, yeah. like this sounds horrible. Oh, that's a whole different animal too. Yeah. Like sharing a small van or whatever. And, you know, yeah, just making hardly any money, just enough to like fill the tank and, you know, maybe fill a t-shirt or two. But um, yeah, yeah that's, that's why you gotta love it. You know, like yeah. people are like, that still, especially this day and age where it's so hard to make a living, I got nothing but respect for people that still like put in that work, like touring in a van. Like, again, that's why whenever I go to a show and it's a small, smaller act, I try to buy some sort of merch, whether it's a record or a t shirt, just because I know like what that entails. Yeah. You know, trying to get the shows and snowstorms and stuff like oh my god it's just... i mean i did that when i was in arizona i played in a few bands and there was a few bands i played in because arizona it's such a big state even if you're just playing in the state you could have like a two-hour drive to a gig or sometimes a five-hour drive to a gig um so like i understand on a smaller scale what that can be like but um yeah i hats off to those people that still really yeah. are trying to do that so crisscross it is tough. yeah i mean for me I, that, that's the, i'm i'm very much studio i want to do things at home i want to i'd rather right. spend the time making a video or something that i would going out on right. the road but like i got up on stage with the drake and at an mf doom uh, tribute show a few months ago oh, and nice. i spit for the first time in forever and i was like oh this is yeah, this feels good. Like you hear the crowd reaction and you're like, all right, well, this is why you do this. You know? Right, right. Uh, Did you go to to the Jizza show? I, you know what? I didn't. I tried to get, so I was going to go and I kept putting off getting tickets because I was just like COVID, blah, blah, blah. Right, and then right. eventually I'm like, I'm going to go. And it was sold out. And I was like, oh, pissed. But then I saw there was going to be negative seven degrees with wind yeah, yeah. that night. And it was I was like, brutal. Because I, I just wouldn't, <laughs> I wouldn't have gone if it was that cold. I'm just too much. Yeah, but you could spend cool. if you wanted, you could pay two hundred fifty dollars to play them in chess beforehand. Oh, nice. Yeah. So I don't know if I would have. I actually know I wouldn't have done that. But <laughs> I mean, I still the jizz and the rizza uh, scene and coffee and cigarettes is still one of the best things. Yes. Ever. It's like you just quit drinking all that caffeine, Bill Murray. <laughs> Goggle with hydrogen peroxide. Yeah. Don't Wasn't there, another, yeah. there was another scene in that movie. Was it Iggy Pop and Tom Waits talking to each other? Yeah, there were some great scenes. I mean, uh, that whole movie is great. But yeah, there was that one. And then there's the um, the Kate Blanchett one she does it with herself. It's phenomenal. Yes. yes. That's, I, was, I was trying to think what that one was. The Iggy Pop and Tom Waits one amused me because Iggy Pop is such like a, he's such a personality on his own. And that yeah. whole scene was him trying to like, he was almost on his on his like on his heels trying to talk to Tom Waits because he's almost being outweirded by somebody he didn't really know. Right, how right, to handle exactly. It. I yeah. that was really cool. <laughs> yeah, but, Tom Waits, he, he can up the weird game for sure. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 
So um, um, I don't know. Like we've been any any closing thoughts or anything? We've been going for a little while. I just looked down at the clock. <laughs> oh, okay. Uh, well, yeah. No, this is great. Um, I appreciate what you're doing with this pod. I think it's important for like, you know, it's good for other artists to hear artists talk about kind of their process and what inspires them and like, you know, just briefly. You know, I never thought I'd be writing songs when I first started playing guitar. Right. And um, oddly enough, the Sarah McLachlan album, Fumbling Towards Ecstasy. Yes. I heard that record, that. which is such an amazing record. And I don't know what I thought about myself at the time to think I could ever create something in that realm. But that was the record that inspired me to like start writing my own stuff. And uh, I was lucky enough to meet her, Leah, actually, and I saw her. Really? Uh, do a solo show and we met her after the show and I got the chance to tell her that which was kind of great like I mean uh, she's just an amazing artist but she was as nice as you would think I mean that's um, wonderful when that happens because I've had that go both ways where they're super with the person you meet is right. super nice and then there other people are not right but yeah no I think you know just any artists out there, even if you're not making a living at it, just like keep doing it. Like it's something to there, there can never be too much art in this world. It's, very know, true. My feelings on it. And um yeah, just you mentioned Sarah McLaughlin. This triggered something in my head. I totally forgot about this story for a long time, but um this isn't related to her, but maybe think of Tori Amos. And there was oh, this sure. time probably in the early 2000s where I had gotten super drunk. We we're in Boston and I was with um, one of my female friends at the time. And I ended up crashing at her place in her roommate's room. And but when I woke up the next morning, I'd never been in the apartment before and I didn't know where I was. And I look around and I see all these photos of like, not like from a magazine, but photo like snapshots of Tori Amos. And wow. <laughs> I was like, am I in Tori Amos's room? <laughs> and then I realized that the guy whose room I was staying in was good friends with Tori Amos. Oh, and wow. so I was, was, but for the first like minute, I'm like, well, what did I do last night? <laughs> yeah. So. Right. <laughs> but um, that's Sarah yeah. McLaughlin. That was a huge album back then. And, and oh, it's, yeah. it's still amazing now. It's um, it's hard not to think about the, the dogs on the commercials yeah. when you think of her, but like. Which she has. Like when we saw her before she played that song, she made a comment. Of, she, you know, made a funny comment about like, I know this song makes a lot of people cry, but that was never my intention. <laughs> um, but she was a great, great sport about that. So well, they still get Canadian. my twenty bucks a month um, from uh, from the A oh, the pet um, yeah. song problem. Well, you were saying she's a what? <laughs> She's Canadian, so she's got a good sense of humor. I think that's kind of intrinsic in most Canadians. So yeah. Well, you uh, mentioned that I um my girlfriend's parents were on a cruise this summer, and Shania Twain was on the cruise, like not like performing, but as a, just a no, regular really. person. And she's like, but she got up there and she performed, and she was wow. super sweet and super funny and super nice and super talented. And you're like, well, that's the Canadian part. Yeah. So not like that's uh, asshole American. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Cool, man. But um, no, yeah, this is great. You know, thanks for uh, getting me on here, and it was a privilege to get on here and talk to you.
No, it's great to talk to you too, man. I really appreciate it. So um, maybe we'll get you on again at some point. Uh, I've got some more stuff to promote. Hopefully we'll keep yeah, yeah, doing this thing for a while to come. So it'll be great to have you on again. And microwave sushi. Yes, that. hopefully. I, I, I'm i working on it. It's one of my numerous projects, but I, I, I don't know. I can hear, already hear it. And the thing is, I'm thinking, I, I sent you with one of the songs that I recorded the rap over. And the next day I was like, just ignore that. Yeah and, yeah, and like now I have, I was like, I tried to do a very like normal rapping approach to that song, and afterwards I'm like, that's not the right take. I got, I got to try something totally different with my vocal approach on it. So now I have cool. this new idea on it that I'm really excited about. So cool, you know, to share to with you guys. So yeah, I'll figure some time to jam. Um, all right, man. Well, it's been a pleasure. Uh, Jason Temple, pick up the album, postcards and yeah. yeah. And, <laughs> ephemera ephemera well actually oh. no we didn't, we didn't talk about that yeah let's talk about right. the title because before we started asking how to pronounce that and that's been like an hour and 15 minutes i've already right. forgotten but let's talk about the title right. a little bit yeah so that's not as pretentious as it sounds like i was saying here before so um not to take it not to make it too sad but um so when my mom was sick in hospice i was driving out to her place constantly um and on the way, I was driving by this antique shop, and they had a sign in front of the store that said "Postcards and Ephemera," and I was like, "That'd be a great album name." Like, I think I had a name picked out for my record whenever it was going to get done. But the more I thought about it, and so the theme of the record cover. So I don't know if you're familiar with the WPA postcards. Sounds it was um, so the WPA was an initiative. I think they did it in the 30s. To promote the national parks okay yeah and they did all these iconic national parks posters that still like they do prints of and stuff and i I'm always smoke the bear fan so i've probably seen yeah. a lot of those things too oh i'm sure you have and like i always love those postcards so that's so that's the theme of the, the cover um so i actually that's from a photo i took of um bash Bish falls and then i had i hired a designer to kind of posterize it and make it look like those old yeah. postcards um but yeah so i felt like the name that title fit the theme of that and even like my logo for my record company yeah. is kind of that vibe too um yeah. but um I got airline my glasses okay go on my glasses so i can't <laughs> so yeah airline records is the, the label um but uh yeah so that was kind of the impetus for that title was like, you know, it kind of fits the the visual theme of the record and yeah. the, the song theme. I would agree, um, yeah, definitely. But yeah, like I got a band camp, just, you know, band camp slash Jason Temple. And I got an Instagram, Jason Temple Music. So, yeah, we'll and that, that has a link to my band camp. Too, yeah. yeah, I got a link to my band camp from that. Um, and yeah, the, it'll, it's all, by the time this is airing, it'll all be on Spotify and all the streaming services too. So awesome. Well, I can't but yeah, wait thanks to, again, man. Yeah. I can't wait to listen to some more and I can't wait to share stuff that we've been working on with people too. And yeah, um, absolutely. Oh, man, it's been great to catch up. All right, man. All right, man. I'll talk to you. Beneath the canopy of stars. Curtains of fireflies Mice hide in beckoned fields Far from the owl's eyes At the bend in the road 
you caught your stride No troubles to follow you No secrets left to hide Fire. Fl-